everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together, we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Surprise! We are here for a very, very exciting, extra special, extra long episode (laughs) for the second ever World Krill Day. With some extra special guests. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Hello, everybody. Hi. (laughs) Happy International Krill Day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we talking about krill? I don't know. Well, Lucy, you you know the story. (laughs) I do know the story. Well, krill are important, and you are about to find out why in this super extra episode. We were asked to create this special episode from... Barbara at Pew Charitable Trust. And now we're here. We're going to talk to a couple of researchers and scientists about krill. We have a lineup of truly amazing guests who are going to tell you, our listeners, all about krill and why you, somebody listening to a podcast who loves whales, should keep listening and care about these itty bitty tiny little krills. First up, we have Dr. Kim Bernard, who talked to us from Antarctica, which was amazing. Kim is a South African biological oceanographer, and she's an associate professor at Oregon State University. She was the founder of the Zooplankton Ecology Lab at that school's College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science. And she is currently in Antarctica during the winter, studying krill and how they reproduce and survive through the winters. Thank you so much, Kim, for making this time. You're welcome. I'm excited to chat with you all today. Just to start with, tell us about yourself and the work that you're doing. Sure. So, all right. Well, I'm I'm a biological oceanographer and I'm an associate professor in the College of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. And I've been studying Antarctic krill for, I'd say, going on 14 years now. Mm. Um, And I've been doing Antarctic research really over 20 years now. And so as a biological oceanographer, my, my research is really focused on zooplankton. So I could be called a zooplankton ecologist as well. And you're obviously talking to me today about Antarctic krill, but I work on other euphalsid species too and other zooplankton. But I think my favorite is definitely <laughs> Antarctic krill. Um, you're, as we said, in Antarctica right now. What's that like? <laughs> Just like a brief overview. I'm sure we've got lots of people who have never even considered going to Antarctica um, listening to the podcast. Well, I'm in Antarctica and it's the middle of winter here. So yeah, it's the biggest thing. Yes. And it is snowing outside right now. I'm looking out my window and there are big fluffy snowflakes falling. Mm. It's It's a magical place and it's somewhere that is very close to my heart and if, if I could I would keep coming here for the rest of my life it's it's hard to describe in so many ways it's sort of otherworldly uh, but it is yeah it's a special place and being here in the winter is a really unique experience prior to this I've, I've spent five summer seasons here at Palmer Station and this is my third winter and I think my favorite time of year here is the winter by far, even though we do see more whales in the summertime mm. and I have some yeah. cool whale right. experiences and encounters <laughs> from then. <laughs> but the winter is just, it's, yeah, it's a pretty beautiful time of year. It, it's sort of this eternal 
sunset, sunrise, mm. pastel colors. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, wow. Sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Mm. Can you tell us more about krill that you're studying? And uh, in particular, a question that we've been meaning to ask is, how do they reproduce? There's so much we don't know about krill. Tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's see. Tell us about krill. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> No, yeah, well, I know it's a big question. <laughs> it's more of yes. We'll start that. Tell us about krill also, and also how do they reproduce? Because that's something we're just like curious yeah. about. <laughs> okay, well, krill are part of the group known as euphausids. They are often referred to as shrimp-like crustaceans, but they aren't shrimps. They're not decapods, so they're in their own class. The Antarctic krill, which is the species that I study, its scientific name is Euphausia superba. It can grow up to roughly two and a half inches in length, so the, the size of my, my baby finger, or your baby finger, depending on how, how big your baby <laughs> finger is, I suppose. And they, they can live for up to seven years, which is really quite astonishing for something mm-hmm. so small and an invertebrate like that for a crustacean. Yeah, and then they only become reproductively active after the age of about two. So <laughs> this brings us to the, the reproduction question. Yeah. Antarctic krill and other krill reproduce sexually, so they are male and females of the species. And um, the males have these little sperm packets that they essentially pass over to the females. Um, And then as the females release their thousands of eggs, they pass by the sperm and, and become fertilized that way. And then for a really long time, I guess it's sort of the, the common paradigm at the moment is our, in our understanding of Antarctic krill is that they will release their eggs over deep waters off the shelf. Um, and the reason for this is that it takes about five days for these eggs to hatch um, hmm. because of the cold temperatures. So the embryonic development is really quite slow in Antarctica. And the whole time they're sinking through the water column. And so the idea is that they do this over deep waters, sort of 800 to 1,000 meters deep, oh. because in five days of sinking, you don't want them to hit, well, presumably they don't want to uh, have their eggs hit the seafloor. Right. Um, and so after five days, they hatch. And then these tiny little uh, larval stages of the krill have to swim up through oh. the whole entire water column until they get up to the surface. <laughs> Uh, and then they can start feeding on phytoplankton up there. And in Antarctic krill, so I, I said that they start reproducing at age two, they only recruit to the population as post larvae after one year. So probably the, the biggest obstacle in their life cycle is uh, at the larval stage when they have to survive their first winter. And so, at, you know, they're, they're coming into the winter, they're, they haven't had enough time to really feed, they don't, the larvae don't accumulate lipids, so they don't have any fat stores to use during the winter. And so they, they really must feed in the winter in order to survive. And if they're able to do that, then they recruit as juveniles the following spring and summer. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot so more interesting. Yeah. No, that no, was great. I just want to learn more about these animals. Yeah, they're so fascinating. <laughs> So how did you end up studying in Antarctica, krill or otherwise? So I guess when I was 13, my my dad came home from work one day and he's a zoologist and one of his colleagues had just come back from the ice is how he referred to it. But the guy had just spent two months down in the Southern Ocean, right uh, off the, the coast of Antarctica. 
studying zooplankton and probably also Antarctic krill. He was a zooplankton ecologist. And I remember at that age just thinking that sounded so cool. And I <laughs> decided then and there that I was going to study. Uh, well, I didn't really know much about zooplankton, but I wanted to be a marine biologist in mm. Antarctica. And then jump forward several many years. Um, I actually ended up doing my graduate studies with that same person. So I got my master's and PhD studying with him. And that was in South Africa. That's where I'm from. And then after my PhD, I did a postdoc in the US. That's how I ended up um, on the side with Dr. Debbie Steinberg at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. And she was part of the, or she still is part of the Palmer Antarctica Long-Term Ecological Research Project or the Palmer LTER. And through that project, I got to come to the Antarctic Peninsula and started studying Antarctic krill and other, at first, other large zooplankton, so salps and pteropods. But I was just really enamored by krill. They're, yeah. they're so cool. You know, they're big enough to, to see really easily. You, you don't need a microscope to mm. see what they are. And they have these cool big eyes that sort of stare up at you. And so that's Amazing. that's how I, I got into the field of Antarctic research and specifically studying Antarctic krill. Amazing. Oh, that's cool. So what do you think people really should know about krill or to understand why they're so important? Like why we should care, even though we most of us don't live in Antarctica? Yeah, that's a great question. Antarctic krill are by far, I would say, and I don't think I'm, I mean, I am a little bit biased, but I think this is a, a very truthful fact. They are critical to the ecosystem in Antarctica. So down here, well, for one, their biomass is estimated at about 500 million metric tons. Mm. They are incredibly Jeez. abundant and very successful. And so many of the high traffic levels down here feed on them and many of them feed exclusively on Antarctic krill. Uh, you know, so so I know I'm speaking to a group of people who love whales, humpbacks, yes, blue whales, minky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they all feed on Antarctic krill. There are also numerous penguins who feel that feed on Antarctic krill, um, seals, seabirds, fish, squid, you name it, there there are so many species of high traffic organisms that feed on Antarctic krill. And many of the, the other species that don't feed on Antarctic krill directly will feed on something that does. So orcas obviously don't feed on Antarctic krill, but they feed on seals that feed on Antarctic yeah. krill. So they really are critical in this ecosystem. And then in addition to the, the role that they play in the food web, Antarctic krill are Essentially, I guess they're like geoengineers. They're very good at capturing carbon and transferring it down to the deep sea. So yeah. in that way, they play an important role in the global carbon cycle. That's so crazy. They're just so tiny and they do so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. They're, they're small, but in their numbers. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of them. Not small at they all. They could take us. Yeah. They decided to rise up. <laughs> they could. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, that's not happening at the moment. But what is happening with krill in the Southern Ocean? So there are quite a few things happening to krill at the moment in the Southern Ocean. I think first I'll, I need to uh, give you an idea of where most of the krill are. So the majority of the circumantarctic krill 
population is centered um, around the Antarctic Peninsula and then up into the Scotia Sea. So that's where most of the krill in the Southern Ocean or the Antarctic krill can be found. And that is also the area that is warming the most rapidly mm. um, around Antarctica. So certain parts of Antarctica are cooling. And so there's a sort of confusion as to whether Antarctica has been affected by climate change, at least uh, in the sort of public perception, as far as I understand. But along the Antarctic Peninsula and in the Scotia Sea, there is no doubt that it is warming and sea ice is declining. And, and that is having a huge impact, negative impact on Antarctic krill in that area. That area is also the focus of the Antarctic krill fishery, which is a rapidly growing fishery and involves numerous, you know, fishing fishing companies from numerous nations, and it's it's set to expand. Mm-hmm. So krill, krill are not only facing climate change, but they're also facing uh, increasing fishing pressure. Yeah. So, what does your research focus on, and why is that data so important to krill and their current status? Well, at the moment, I guess the research that I'm doing in Antarctica right now is part of a five-year grant that I was funded back in 2018. So this is the last field season Ooh. we have. We're, we're looking at how diet affects the ability of juvenile Antarctic krill to survive the winter and essentially how it affects their health and their physiology. And there's a couple of reasons why specifically juveniles, specifically winter, and specifically diet. So we're focusing specifically on juveniles because that stage has been largely understudied in the past. A lot of research has been done on adult krill and on larval krill, but really not much on the juveniles. Winter in particular is also a a majorly understudied time of year. It's, as you can imagine, quite challenging to get to Antarctica in the wintertime and spend time down here and to do the actual research. So... So there was another gap there. And then the reason we're focusing on diet is because krill are omnivorous. Um, And actually, the the title of my project is The Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. (laughs) And and credit to Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) We love it. Credit to him for coming up with the, the really catchy name. But I chose The Omnivore's Dilemma because Krill are omnivores. They eat both microscopic algae, so in particular diatoms, and also they eat other small zooplankton, things like Mm. copepods, which are small crustaceans. And along the Antarctic Peninsula, because of climate change, the amount of diatoms uh, has decreased and the amount of copepods has increased. And so there's a sort of shift in food available to Antarctic krill in the wintertime. And so what we really wanted to do was to understand how this might affect the health and physiology of juvenile krill in the winter. Um, And so we we have this big experiment. We collect juvenile krill when we come south to Palmer Station from the ship. And we we keep them in big tanks throughout the entire winter. So for five months, we keep them alive and we feed them different types of food. And then at sort of roughly monthly intervals, we run a whole suite of experiments on them to look at their growth rates and their respiration. And then we take samples to look at their lipids and protein, um, essentially, and caloric content, essentially just trying to understand how well they're doing and and how that their diet is affecting that. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I think 
there's a lot of stuff. Like we talk obviously a lot about whales. We and some of, of course, some species of whale, including and cetaceans, bottlenose dolphins, and southern resident killer whales are like some of the most well-studied animals in the world. So we forget when there's stuff like that that other species of animals, and especially something so small and so hard to get to for the last hundreds of years, we don't know mm. so much about mm. the basics before we can even get to other stuff. We have to learn all the stuff about how they do this, how they survive and what they're, yeah. how, how they, they grow, how they breathe, how they, all the stuff. And we have to do all of that. And that's super important to killer whales mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, I, there's actually a, a PhD student in my lab who's going to be, she's going to have a chapter on this in her dissertation. Um, most of her work is off the coast of Oregon, but um, she's going to have an Antarctic chapter too. She's here with us right now. And she's looked at um, the caloric content of the krill and how their diet affects their caloric content as as prey to, mm-hmm. to high right. trophic levels because she's really yeah. interested actually in, in whales and yeah. their food. And it, it does have a huge difference. We got mm-hmm. some preliminary yeah. results in and what they eat matters. So, yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. Cool. What, what sort of further research and actions do you think are necessary to keep krill at a healthy level or get them back to a healthy level in the Southern Ocean in particular? I think that, so the marine protected areas, I think are just mm. by far and away the most important thing. And there, there, have, there are a number of them that have been proposed. There is especially um, a sort of series of connected marine protected areas that have been proposed for the Antarctic Peninsula, for the Western Antarctic Peninsula. Um, that's been proposed by um, Chile and Argentina combined, but I know that each year they put it forward to Kamala, it, it's sort of turned down um, mm-hmm. because Kamala is a full consensus, obviously. Yeah. So if there's any nation that disagrees, it doesn't go through. But I, I really believe that that would be um, a critical step that is necessary in order to try to maintain the krill population for you know for the the, the high trophic levels that uh, live in along the western antarctic peninsula and then for sustainability for the fishery even mm-hmm. i think continued research long-term research in this area is also incredibly valuable because it is is really only with continued um, sustained research efforts that we've been able to tell that Antarctic krill that the population itself has started to decline and that mm-hmm. the center of the population has shifted southwards mm-hmm. without a long-term sort of continuous monitoring uh, of the species we would not have been able to, to tell that um, and so I think ensuring that there is sufficient funding and resources that the sort of work can continue is going to be vital so you've been obviously studying krill for quite some time, as you mentioned. What are some of the important changes that you have seen over time that you haven't touched on already? I think, I guess what, I, what, I, what I'll say, it's got actually nothing to do with krill, because um, I, did, I did just mention the, the fact that the population mm-hmm. was declining. But having come down to, to Palmer Station, the same place uh, year after year, the first year I spent, the first summer I spent here was in the Austral summer of 2010-2011. And I have seen whole islands appearing out from the glacier because of yeah. how fast the glacier here is receding. I think that that to me is the most astonishing thing to have witnessed in my lifetime. And it's not even my lifetime. It's yeah. it's sort of 
in the last <laughs> 15 years or so. So it's really, that is eye-opening. And I think in addition to that, in the in my early years of coming down here, we used to go to uh, Torgerson Island, which is just across the way from us, from here at Palmer Station. And it's there's a, um, a deli penguin breeding colony there. And that has just become, it's just really plummeted. The population has really mm. plummeted. And there's a lot of work that's been done mm. there um, by the Palmer LTR project. That they've, they've shown the dramatic decrease in the numbers, but it's, it's one thing to look at a graph showing this decline to actually know that you've been there and you've seen it in these different stages. I mean, I, I obviously never saw it when it was at its at its height, but I can definitely see um, the difference. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's that and the fact that last year when I was here, it rained all the way through Ooh. the whole winter, not consistently, but we were getting rain in winter in Antarctica. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. intense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah. With all these changes, we talked about how it's affecting the animals and, and also the krill. So what, uh, how is the ecosystem coping? How are they adapting to this climate change as if they even are? I don't think, yeah, I don't know if they're adapting to it necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if we look at the ecosystem, so the Adelie penguins seem not to be able to adapt as quickly mm-hmm. um, as the, mm. the, the change is happening. So their population really is is sort of crashing in this northern part of the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, other species are coming in um, mm. from the north. So gentoo penguins are becoming mm. really abundant down here right now. Um, and so, you know, there's there's always going to be the, the winners and the losers of the climate change. Yeah battle i guess yeah Mm -hmm. antarctic krill themselves are incredibly flexible and adaptable at least from you know from what we've seen and and what my you know what i've seen and what my colleagues have seen but we know that their their population that their total numbers has started declining and we know that the the center of the population is shifting south and there are links between um Mm -hmm. decreasing sea ice and and the change in in the abundance and distribution of Antarctic krill. So, you know, how their populations will fare in the future is yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. But I think given their critical role mm-hmm. in this ecosystem and in the biogeochemical cycles globally, I think it's really important that we understand more about them as a species and are better able to predict how they are either if they're either going to adapt or or not to future changes because it's going to have a huge a huge impact on this whole system so bringing it back to whales because that's our personal favorites do you have any insider observations about the relationship as the whale populations post post massive amounts of uh, commercial whaling are coming back and then the krill population shifts and population decline any sort of observations or I, I know there have that? been studies looking at that and, and papers that have sort of um, mm-hmm. hypothesized that the decrease in krill may be the, re- the result of this sort of sudden surge and increase mm-hmm. in in humpback whales I think in particular yeah it's one of those things that mm-hmm. yeah it's one of those things that I think it's really hard to disentangle the various 
causes and effects. And yeah. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. whether krill are declining because whales are increasing or because climate change is, is worsening or because the fishing is increasing. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, perhaps it is just a complicated combination of, of those and likely other factors that we haven't considered. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think it's probably too early to say whether or not you know the the the, the whales themselves are having a negative impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I do yeah. I do know that mm-hmm. that when there's when there's lots of krill, there are whales. Yeah, they have a good, good way of <laughs> really good yeah, tracking really them good down. finding the krill. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense well one of the things that we always like to talk about when it comes to the cetaceans on our podcast is what our favorite fun flipper fact is for whichever species we're highlighting in that episode uh but since we're focused on krill today we were wondering if you could share with us what your favorite krill fact is (laughs) i think there's, there's a lot of really cool krill facts but one of the things that i find really funny and also sometimes frustrating is that they're incredibly good at escaping. Oh. So they have this full okay. escape response where they, where they sort of fold, like they fold themselves in half and like, I just like clap my hands, but it's as if they kind of, kind of like is it clams that swim backwards like mm. that. Yeah. So good at doing that. And mm. it's, so it's a bit frustrating too, because when I'm trying to, grab one with a forcep <laughs> like i use these really soft insect forceps so that they don't hurt the krill so i can yeah. you know do some live yeah. experiments with them i'm trying to grab them with that if they yeah. if they have any idea of what's happening they're zooming around <laughs> the bucket and i can't catch them it's really hilarious and then also when there's um <laughs> when there's a lot of krill in the in the water column so like one of the summers i was here i was out in the zodiac doing acoustic surveys surrounded by a ton of humpbacks and there was krill from the surface of the water down to the seafloor it's shallow right here but there was just krill everywhere and as we were going over with the zodiac they were the ones at the surface were literally popping out like popcorn because they were doing this escape response thing um, (laughs) and jumping out of the water it's a really so, cool it's really cool but it's oh why gosh. they are difficult to catch and mm. they're very wily oh my gosh <laughs> i can't I even it. imagine they're just they're yeah. so crazy yeah i mean i've spent a lot of my career trying to catch various <laughs> animals of various descriptions terrestrial aquatic flying yeah. etc but like, none of yeah, them trying to do that like you know, two and a half inches long like, so i can't even imagine you know like um, <laughs> it just makes it so much harder that movie karate kid when when um, oh yeah his trainer is is catching yes catch flies with with chopsticks yeah, it's a little bit like that <laughs> yes yeah that's yeah. over yeah yes <laughs> otherwise, they, know. Go otherwise they are they seem, yeah. <laughs> they seem to have a yeah you know they seem to know yeah <laughs> They know what's happening anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Response. All right. Yeah. So another one of the <laughs> yes. questions we like to ask everybody on here, and you've already touched on some, is what is your favorite, most memorable whale encounter or maybe um, rare species or behavior you have seen? Anything that really sticks in your mind? Because we always like to bring the conversation back to cetaceans. It's for who we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've had, I mean, I've had some amazing whale encounters when I'm out looking for krill i feel like talking to a bunch of 
whale enthusiasts <laughs> and whale researchers I'm sure you've all had. <laughs> Well, we'd love to many, hear many everybody's exciting. Well, yeah, account. it does not no, get old. Never, never gets old. So. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was the Christmas of one of the summers that I was here, and we were out. Um, my my field assistant and I were out in a zodiac, doing our acoustic survey, which is how we we map the krill, and there were just krill everywhere. You know, as I mentioned, from the the surface yeah. down to the sea floor. And we stopped, I think, to have a lunch break. <laughs> anyway, so we were like floating. We'd, we'd sort of, you know, we, we'd put into neutral and we're eating our sandwiches on the boat. And these two humpback whales, so we're, you know, we're not supposed mm. to go up to to any of the um, the mammals and or birds. And and so, you know, we, we, were, we kept our distance, but we'd stopped the boat and they came right oh. up to us. And we were sort of sitting there quietly. We were like, well, do we do we move? Do we not move? We're just going to sit as still as we can um, and you know try not to disturb them. And they took turns. There were two of them. And first the one went underneath the zodiac. And I was like, oh my god, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And I leaned over the the pontoon and I was sort of looking in the water, like where did it go? And I just see this massive eyeball <laughs> coming out from underneath, just like literally right under oh, there. Yeah. And it, it sort of looked at me. And then I guess, I think it was a sort of like pectoral fin that came up just like right next to the boat and it, as it sort of rolled and went off. And then the second one did the exact same thing. And just having this, this eyeball yeah. looking up at me was incredible. I was, oh my gosh, I was blown away. Was, yeah, that was probably my, my favorite and closest yeah, definitely. whale oh. encounter out here. It's amazing incredible that's <laughs> amazing yeah they're so i mean they really are yeah they're 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 so magical mm-hmm. <laughs> that this has been amazing thank you so much yeah. kim for taking the time and for nerding out oh, with krill with yeah. us and yeah that was super cool. i think it's so great that we're we're sharing we're introducing krill to the world world krill day they're important Next up, we have Jen Walsh, who is a research biologist with the Antarctic Ecosystem Research Division at the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Her research focuses on the trophic ecology of Antarctic krill, and she studies the distribution and abundance of krill around the northern Antarctic Peninsula in relation to chlorophyll concentration. Hi, Jen. Thanks for joining us on this podcast for World Krill Day. We're super excited to talk to you about your research and also your comics. So can we start off um, by telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. Uh, Hi, my name is Jen Walsh, and I am a research biologist with the Antarctic Ecosystem Research Division of the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Oh. I know, it's a long introduction. Uh, and the Southwest Fisheries Science Center is part of the uh, U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. That's a lot. It How is. did you... <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot. I know. It's a mouthful. Yeah. How did you end up studying krill in the, the Antarctic? It was a total accident on my part. So I did my undergrad in marine biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And I actually worked with marine mammals for a long time and then decided that just really wasn't for me. It's not what I wanted to do. And so I ended up going back to school for a master's degree in marine science. And I had a committee member who needed a technician to 
uh, work on internet first deals with him right after I defended my thesis. And so I didn't have a job lined up, I defended, and I'm like, okay, what now? And he said, well, if you want to go to Antarctica, nobody turns that down. No. So I said, sure, sign me up. I'll go to Antarctica. What do you need me to do? And he said, well, I need you to sort poop. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's, mm-hmm. that's cool. I'll yep. do that. Yep. So I sorted a lot of first seal poop. And what I was looking for was evidence of what they ate. Uh, because, you know, your poop can tell you a lot about your diet. Um, so I was going through and I was finding krill carapaces, because uh, krill is a major food source for <clears throat> Antarctic fur seals. Uh, and uh, at the risk of sounding kind of gross, krill carapaces are a little bit like corn. Like, oh. <laughs> you don't digest them. <clears throat> ah. so you can identify it when it comes out the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can find those uh, intact krill carapaces and you can measure them, the dimensions of them, you can estimate the size of the krill that the first seal ate. Oh, yeah. That's a lot mm-hmm. of information for us in terms of what the prey field is like out there for them. Uh, so I did that, and I also uh, extracted lipids from milk samples that he was collecting from female Antarctic first seals oh. while they were lactating and raising their young. Uh, and lipid extractions was something I had done for my master's degree, so I already knew how to do that. Very handy. So I did that for, yeah, I did that for a couple of years in Antarctica on a research vessel, which was a great job for a seasick person, sorting poop. <laughs> oh, <no>. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then after a couple of years, our program uh, wasn't able to afford to go out to sea during the summer anymore. And we ended up doing a series of these five winter cruises in Antarctica, which was really, really cool because not a lot of people get to go to Antarctica during yeah. the winter. And there's not a lot of data about anything in Antarctica during the winter. Um, however, our field camps where all of these first seal samples were collected during the summertime, they're not open during the wintertime because our field camps are very remote and very um, basic. They're not like the larger field stations mm. that people might be more familiar with. Um, so I still wanted to go out to see, but I didn't have these first seal samples to work on. So I came up with the idea, well, what if I did these lipid extractions and maybe some other biochemical analyses on krill themselves and other zooplankton? Because again, just not much is known about them during the winter, not much is known about their diets, not much is known about how they respond to differences in sea ice concentrations. And so I went out to sea for five winters in a row and I built this really cool data set of uh, lipid content, which tells you about body condition and just um, you know the general uh, health of krill during the winter time, and also stable isotopes, which tell you about their trophic position, where they are on the food chain. Anyway, so I went out to sea for these five winters, and I, I collected all this data, and uh, that's kind of how I ended up studying krill. It was just uh, kind of a, a happy accident, really. Yeah, that's, that's so really cool. great. And now I don't have to study poop anymore. Yeah, exactly. I, I transitioned from post-digested krill to pre-digested mm-hmm. krill. It's been a really nice change. That must smell yeah, better. Must be nice. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, it smells better. So, what would you like people to know about krill, Jen? Why are they important? Well, krill are the foundation of the Antarctic system. They are so important for fish, for marine mammals, anything from seals to whales. They're important for many, many species of seabirds and penguins. And several of the species that we study at our field camps are, they're krill dependent during the breeding season. And these animals, these Antarctic fur seals and these penguins that that our program studies, they uh, reproduce on land. So fur seals give birth on land and penguins hatch their chicks on land. 
And they have to make these cyclical trips to sea to feed their young while they are raising their young. And so if there are not enough krill in the vicinity of where these animals are raising their young, that means they have to travel farther, be gone longer, and potentially not come back with as much energy, energy to transfer to their young. And that also leaves their young, their chicks and their, their pups, vulnerable to predation from other animals, like leopard seals, for example. Mm. That's a big issue in our, um, in our study area. So if there are not very many krill, then that really makes that population vulnerable. So again, <clears throat> they're, they're the foundation of the food web down there. And without them, we wouldn't have all of those uh, other, you know, iconic charismatic animals that people are more familiar with. So they're, they're super important to the entire yeah. So what is going on with krill right now in the Southern Ocean? Well, it really depends regionally. Antarctica, you know, it's not the same all the way around the continent. Mm. So I I can speak really about the northern Antarctica because that's the area that I'm familiar with. That's where all of our studies is there. But what I say about that region might not hold true for other areas of Antarctica, like areas farther west along the peninsula or east Antarctica. Uh, but what we've noticed in our area is, you know, the biomass of krill, which is what our program is responsible for measuring each year, it does fluctuate on an annual basis. But evidence suggests that the biomass has declined and that it's also contracting south as waters warm and there's less and less sea ice. Populations of krill are also moving south to follow the thinner water and to follow the sea ice. And so what I was talking about with those uh, krill-dependent predators that breed on land that have to go to sea, that poses a big problem for them because now krill are moving out of the range that it is uh, feasible for them to go and feed on while they're raising their them. So climate change is definitely having a big impact on not only krill, but the animals that rely on them to survive to properly raising them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to your research on that and the data that you're collecting from the pre-digested krill. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that data important to what's going on in the area? That is an excellent question. I'm going to try to break this down (laughs) in non-jargon terms. Hopefully I can do. Uh, So as the climate changes in Antarctica, as there is less sea ice, uh, particularly during winter, and as the ocean gets warmer, that changes a lot of things about the ocean. And one of the major climate changes is the um, species composition of the phytoplankton that's down there. So when it's warmer and the water is more stratified and there's less ice, we tend to see this shift towards these smaller species of zooplankton, or sorry, phytoplankton. Mm. And krill really, they're going to see that phytoplankton. They like diatoms and bigger, kind of liquid rich. Uh, phytoplankton species and these smaller species they're just not uh they don't efficiently feed on them very much so we've noticed in years where there's been less sea ice than other years that uh, the phytoplankton community is dominated by these small species and krill just don't feed as effectively so i think it's really important to take a look at what krill are eating and what their body condition is like as these environmental changes are happening and definitely throughout these five years of data but uh, I collected I noticed that in years where we didn't have a lot of sea ice, where we didn't have a lot of diatoms, the body condition of krill was definitely inferior mm. to the body condition of krill when there were a lot of diatoms and a lot of sea ice. And they have these uh, more lipid-rich kind of quality resources to feed on during the winter time. 
And I think those are the things we're going to need to start paying attention to as the climate continues to change and we start seeing the less and less CMs. For example, I think this uh, coming winter in Antarctica, well, it's not coming, it's winter now, mm-hmm. uh, is on track to be the lowest sea ice winter yeah. in Antarctica on record. And I think uh, if that in combination with an El Nino, that they're predicting, uh, is going to have major consequences for curl, particularly along the Antarctic Peninsula, because along the western Antarctic Peninsula, when there are El Nino years, we tend to see uh, warmer conditions and a lot less sea ice. And I think that's going to really negatively impact for populations along the western Antarctic Peninsula, for sure. Mm. Uh, so for me, looking at uh, sea ice tilts and, and uh, whether krill are feeding on phytoplankton and their zooplankton, looking at their lipid content in their body condition and, and trying to monitor over time how they're going to respond to these changes in their environment, particularly warming and less sea ice, is going to be really, really important in the future. Yeah, definitely. So I th- believe you're using gliders in your research. So. What are they? How do they work? And why was this type of research or methodology implemented? So it was implemented. I'll start there. Uh, yeah. We used to go to sea every year, whether mm-hmm. it was in the summer or the winter, uh, annually, because we have a, a congressional mandate from the U.S. government to actually study the marine ecosystem in Antarctica so that we can provide advice to organizations that manage the fishery. After 2016 or so, our programs couldn't afford to go to sea. Right? It costs a lot to uh, oh, yeah. charter charter a research vessel in yeah. for a month at a time. And particularly during the winter, it was costing us in excess of 60000 US dollars oh. a day to charter oh, a vessel to be in So that was not possible for us anymore. But we still have this congressional mandate. So how are we going to continue to provide uh, this ecosystem data about a research vessel, and gliders were kind of the really, uh, obvious answer to that. So gliders are, they look like enormous yellow torpedoes with wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They are not explosive. Good. <laughs> Just... Important to distinguish. And they uh, are incredibly cost-efficient, and they can carry a ton of the same sensors that we use on the ship to collect data about the marine ecosystem. So we have echo sounders on them that can still estimate real biomass. We have an optical sensor on them that can still measure chlorophyll concentration of the water. So we can get an idea of what the primary pervasivity is like in the water column. We can't necessarily break that down to species, but at least we can get an idea of uh, how much uh, primary productivity is happening. There's an oxygen sensor on them, which also tells us a little bit about the primary productivity. There's a CTD on them, which stands for conductivity and temperature depth, which tells us about the temperature, the salinity. Uh, so all of those things that we use to measure from a ship, we can still measure with a glider. Um, and we can do that without having to, A, charter a vessel for tens of thousands of dollars each day, and B, pay a whole staff of mm. scientists to uh, you know, collect real-time samples, process real-time samples. So it ends up being a huge cost savings for us. And these gliders have three enormous lithium batteries in them, uh, and they're incredibly energy efficient, and they uh, they just perform these sawtooth dive patterns. They can dive down to a thousand meters, mm. uh, which also is deeper than we would ever sample from the ship. So they've mm-hmm. increased kind of the depth of the ocean that we can sample. They can travel uh, in excess of a thousand kilometers during a two to three month deployment. So they've also 
increase the amount of space that we can cover. And so they've been a, a super duper cost-effective way for us to still maintain our presence in Antarctica, still collect all of these really important data that we need. And yeah, so yeah. it's a really, a really great addition. They come with a huge learning curve. Mm, yeah. If you're not a technologically savvy person, like I am not, they are not easy to learn how to use. Wow. But you know, once you kind of master that, it's been five or six years now, and I'm, I don't know, maybe 70% of the way there. <laughs> but they, they have allowed us to uh, maintain our program and still collect really, really cool data about the Antarctic. And we've recently incorporated cameras onto them, so now we can either get pictures oh. of krill and other zooplankton down there, which is really exciting. So they've been a really good um, way for us to um, keep collecting data without yeah. having to... Um, they sound so cool and i feel yeah. like i just have this like <laughs> little spaceship in my mind picture it. do you yeah. have videos that you could share i have uh i have still pictures I yeah have a video of no a, photos of would a be glider, great but i have i have still pictures of um of gliders that i can share sure i'm so yeah. fascinated to like <laughs> understand how they go in the water and then back up because all i'm picturing in my mind are like diving birds and it would it i've never thought of a person-made object yeah, doing that, that do sort of thing, that? like a diving bird. So. Well, they, they're really slow. So okay. you know, diving okay. birds are kind of fast, like super fast okay. on yeah. their prey. Yeah. Gliders move at an average speed of about 20 centimeters a second. Oh, that's... So we are not talking about <laughs> something diving birds. going okay. super fast. Recalculating everything in my yeah. head <laughs> also they, makes a lot more sense. They creep <laughs> yes. along. So one dive down to about 960 meters and back up takes about four hours. Yeah. That makes way more sense. But also, if they're measuring things that much, then yes, that would be measuring. Yeah, that's also great for us though, because (laughs) there are things that we want to avoid hitting. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Uh, ships, icebergs, patches of sea ice in general, not necessarily Mm -hmm. icebergs. And what's great about gliders is that when they do hit something, it's not this like catastrophic uh, thing. Wham! Oh my God, the glider hit something and it disintegrated. It just kind of bumps. Yeah, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's even much if better. It gets stuck under an iceberg, which has happened before, it'll just kind of bump its way out from under the iceberg, and so it might not surface when you expect it, and then you start to panic. Oh my god, I've lost the glider! And then it eventually surfaces, and then you can see in the dive pattern that it was bouncing around something not quite on the surface. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, it was stuck under something. <laughs> yeah, um, but if they moved faster, they would like I don't know, just blow to bits when they yeah. uh, when they impacted something. So it's it's not like that. So it's actually kind of great that they. Well. I love that. Yes, that is right. <laughs> Okay, so you've talked a lot about your research. Now we get to give you an opportunity to do a call out. Like, what further research and actions do you think are necessary to ensure that krill are remaining at this healthy level that we'd like to see them in the Southern Ocean? Well, that's the question of the day. And <laughs> I think that, you know, continuing to study them and understand how their populations respond to climate change is really all they can do. And then manage the krill fishery appropriately. Mm hmm. For, for those circumstances. You know, in terms of saving the krill population, like, I don't know what else we can do except stop what we're doing to warm the planet. Yeah. So, I mean, just understanding how it's how it's going to change and how, how 
proagulate to keep moving south? Are their properties stabilized? So what's going to happen to them? Those are all things that we don't have a great grasp on that we need to understand. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say what do we need to do to save crow populations because, again, it's not like we can you know, do what we do with some uh, critically endangered larger animals like what mm. is used in aquarium as a child or being introduced to super wild. Yeah. But I think we just need to understand how they're going to respond, what kind of uh, management things we need to do as we understand how their populations change, how populations of animals that depend on crow change as their prey field changes, and then and then go from there. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a, a weird question to answer because it's hard to say how, how to save krill except yeah, to for sure. stop warming the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, although I am I am now thinking yeah. about a krill aquarium, which I think probably would look like a flea circus, which is just like water or like zoo like, sea oh, monkeys. Sing. Yeah, <laughs> you see the little like, thing where they have all the squid in the window. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, whatever we can do to yeah. stop and potentially reverse what we've done mm-hmm. would be great. I don't yeah. know if that's possible. I don't know. Even if we were to stop emitting carbon today, yeah, what would happen? The environment to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think all we can do is study them as best we can and understand what's going to happen in the future, whether that's based on the real data that we collect or uh, models that we can generate to uh, kind of project into the future of what the populations mm-hmm. are going to look like. But uh, we just need we just need to study them more and mm-hmm. hopefully have people come to their senses. Yeah. Yeah. So moving to slightly less dire topics, tell us about your Instagram comic, The Scholarly Krill, and why you were inspired to start it and what you hope to share with people by um, having these awesome little comics that I'm enjoying greatly anyway. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I think it was kind of a pandemic project for me. Mm-hmm. We were all stuck at home for a while and we're not interacting with each other as much as we used to. I really enjoy science communication. It's kind of yep. one of my passions. And uh, I write a blog from Noah's website about red gliders where I just like to tell stories about mm-hmm. science. And, and for me in particular, working for a U.S. government agency, like our science is funded by taxpayers. And so I do think that federal scientists in particular we have an obligation to communicate to the public what we're doing and mm-hmm. why what we do is not only beneficial for the environment, but beneficial for them as taxpayers. We need to demonstrate that what they're spending their money on has value. Yeah. Uh, so I really, really like writing these stories and telling these stories about science uh, in non-scientific terms, again, in mm-hmm. story form, in, in, in ways that people can understand what we're And so I do do that for work, but then I, I during the pandemic, I, I got this drawing tablet and I was learning how to use it. And I was really enjoying just doodling and drawing this really silly curl. And I was like, oh, well, if I could just make cartoons about this and then just have like an educational fact about curl once a week, a curl fact once a week and how it's going to go with it. And I'd always kind of resisted social media. I'm not really a big social media person. But well, I can do a once a week cartoon. I can, I can manage that. And I didn't think anybody would look at it except mm. my mom and a couple of friends that I bribed to follow me. And now I think I'm up to 400 followers, which I know, mm. I mean, if you're going to be an influencer, it's not a huge amount of followers. But I mean, it was 
built from nothing. Yeah. And um, it's been really fun. And and a lot of people have found it by accident. And I've had lots of few charitable trusts reach out to me. Mm-hmm. I've had the U.S. National Science Foundation reach out to me. And so it's been really, really fun. And it's gotten a lot of attention. And it was just a way for me to kind of draw attention to krill, draw attention to climate change in a way, again, that's accessible for people and, and um, not scientific and not jargon, which is kind of a fun yeah. way to make people aware of krill, their role in the ecosystem, and the challenges that they face with climate change. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the science communication front, one of the things that we love to do on our podcast are what we call fun flipper facts, where each month we pick what's our favorite fact about that species. So what is one of your favorite facts about krill? Favorite facts about krill? I don't know. I just think they're cute. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a favorite. Mm, I should have been more ready for this question. It's okay. It's okay. We yeah. like to spring it on people so that they yeah. answer. But I feel like I should have an answer ready for that. Like, I should just immediately be like, oh, Um I do like that when they've eaten a lot of diet bombs, they look green. Oh, that is cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, during the... Especially during the summertime when you're eating a lot of phytoplankton, which is phytoplankton bloom, you're seeing a lot of balance arms. Their whole uh, kind of abdomen and their digestive gland looks bright green. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. I don't know. I just think they're they're pretty cool to study, and I like that they support a whole ecosystem. But, you know, people always study them in terms of being a prey item for other mm-hmm. uh, animals and for being a target of a fishery. They are a, a target of a major fishery in Africa. But I kind of like studying them for who they are. <laughs> oh, I love no. that. Yeah. That's adorable. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Give, the, yeah. give krill some love for being krill, not just yeah. a prey item or yes. a notch on the food chain. Exactly. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to completely switch that and say, in all of your studies with krill, because we are a whale podcast, what was your favorite whale encounter or maybe rarest, unique, one that sticks out in your mind? My favorite whale. Hmm. Oh, I have an answer for this. Oh, perfect. I'm not a whale biologist, uh, but my very, very first trip to Antarctica, I was on this big Russian vessel. And that was uh, during the time when I was still in post-digestive curl world. So mm. I was sorting poop. Yep. And I was at my microscope in this little tiny lab and uh, sorting poop. And I'd been sorting poop for several hours. And I had a little tiny porthole window in my lab. And I just happened to look up at the same moment that I saw like a splash and I didn't know what it was but it was an unusual splash so I got up and I looked out the, the, the porthole and I saw like a giant fork flipper like just come out of the water and then hit down and it was right next to the boat like <laughs> so close I, I, I thought I imagined that I had seen it at first and the, the cruise that I was on was mostly a, um, a fish survey so I was just this weird person off to the side so <laughs> sorting first seal poop, but everybody else was up on deck processing a net haul of fish mm. they had just brought up. And everybody was 
focused on what they were doing. Nobody was looking up. They were in this little lab on, on the deck of the ship sorting their fish. And so nobody had any idea that there was this whale like right next to the side of the ship. And so I ran up to the deck and I was trying to get people's attention. I'm like, hey, hey, and nobody was listening to me and I'm screaming at them, hey. And then finally I just screamed, oh, really <laughs> And that gets people's attention. Everybody yes. stops at this and you look up. And I'm like, why is there's a whale? And I'm pointing off the side of the ship. So everybody abandons what they're doing. Everybody runs up to the bow of the ship. And there were two humpback whales. Oh. And they put on an amazing show. They weren't breaching, but they were feeding. And they were you know, flapping their pectoral yeah. uh, fin. And just kind of twirling around on the surface of the water. And they stayed there for maybe a good 20 minutes. Oh. Just hanging out. I don't know if we just sailed the ship through a big patch of whatever they were feeding on. I don't mm-hmm. know why they happened to be there, but it was it was quite remarkable. And that was the probably the closest and the longest I've ever yeah. been to whales. And it was cold and it was in the Antarctic. And there were, I have some great pictures of them. Almost, the pictures are almost not that great because they were too close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We know that feeling. Yeah. 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 Pictures of like the whole whale. I could get like a part of a whale. <laughs> So I, that will always stick out in my memory as one of my favorite um, times that I saw whales. Because I grew up in Southern California. I've been out on whale mm-hmm. watching trips. And I've seen gray whales off of our coast here a lot. But, but nothing is like that. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. That's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that story with yeah. us. Jen, was there anything that we missed that you wanted to touch on while you were chatting with us? I'm excited that you're um, doing a little episode about krill, because I know krill aren't whales, but they are super important to whale populations. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and this is only the second World Krill Day ever coming up yeah. on August 11th. So I'm excited to see that people are really noticing it and people are really effort to bring awareness to krill and how important they are, particularly in Antarctica. But krill are found all over mm-hmm. the world, all over in world's oceans everywhere. So, you know, they're, they're major parts of marine ecosystems like there. And so I'm excited to see that they're finally getting the love that they yeah. deserve. Because they're very full in their own right, but also as prey items. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just happy to talk about them and see that people are excited about them. And, yeah. Well, yeah. we've loved talking to you about them. Thanks so much for yeah, teaching us so much. Thank you so much for everything. <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. It was fun. That was great. And... If you are listening today or any day, but especially on World Krill Day, be sure to head over to Jen's Instagram to check out all of the comics. I'm super in love with her Krill comics. They're adorable and they make me love Krill even more than I already do. Indeed. Which is impressive. (laughs) Next up, we have Nikki Bransom, who works on Pew's Protecting Antarctica's Southern Ocean Project, which focuses on conserving an area that encompasses 10% of the world's ocean through the creation of a network of large-scale marine protected areas around Antarctica. Nikki's going to talk to us about more of the MPA and the logistic sides of protecting krill and the Antarctic. So welcome, Nikki. Thank you so much for being here. Can you, just to start, tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Absolutely. Lindsay, thank you to you and your team for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about one of my favorite animals, krill, and um, of course the whales that depend on them. So I work with the uh, Pew Bertarelli Ocean Legacy Project. Uh, It's part of the Pew Charitable Trust. We are based in Washington, D.C., and I work on a project that is focused on 
uh, protecting the ocean around Antarctica. We work with an international group called the Commission for the Conservation of International Marine Living Resources, and we are working with this international multilateral body to uh, help them achieve their goals of creating a large-scale network of marine protected areas, as well as ecosystem-based fisheries management measures for the Antarctic krill fishery. And I am actually uh, trained as a marine ecologist by background. Okay, great. Cool. So... Obviously, we're talking about krill today. So can you just give us like a quick, what is krill, especially for people who maybe are like, krill's just what whales eat, but like, it's more than that. (laughs) Absolutely. So krill are these really important crustaceans that are thought to actually have the largest weight of any animal species on the planet other than humans at this time. So yes, they're classified as zooplankton, but uh, so normally people think about zooplankton as these tiny animals that are found in aquatic environments, maybe even microscopic, but krill are actually not microscopic at all. They're about the size of a human adult pinky, and they're bigger than many commonly sold shrimp species that you might find in the grocery store or at a restaurant. And their Latin name actually is Euphalsia superba, which means that they are the biggest and most superb species of all krill on the planet. Love. Sounds, I love Sounds that. like somebody who really so loved cute. krill was in charge of naming, giving them their Latin name. <laughs> They're hard not to love once you know yeah. more about them. So then what makes krill so important? Yeah, so one thing that's really important about krill is that while, you know, they may be two and a half inches, they form these massive swarms that can actually be seen from space. And so it's because there's so many of them and they have these swarms that they're so important. So they can actually remove carbon from the atmosphere and they also serve as a critical food source for many different Antarctic species from emperor penguins to chinstrap and adelie penguins to leopard seals and of course all the different whale species that you all love (laughs) so actually most of the animal species in the antarctic either eat krill or eat something that eat krill and then in terms of their role in the biological cycling of nutrients what they do regarding carbon is near the surface of the ocean they feed on algae that have absorbed carbon from the atmosphere and these massive swarms migrate down to the depths of the ocean and then they excrete their waste and in that way they're transferring large amounts of carbon to the depths of the ocean and it's estimated that the amount of carbon they can store each year in the deep ocean is equivalent to taking about 35 million cars off of the road whoa Wow. Wow. Okay, so they're important then. You've convinced me. Indeed. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That's so species of whales in Antarctica do uh, eat krill. So we've got humpbacks, fin whales. Yeah, so the species that the the whale species that depend on krill in the Antarctic are humpbacks, fin whales, minke whales, blue whales, and say okay. whales. Cool. So, cool. Lots of the main ones that are baleen yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah lots sure. of the main ones. All the big baleen whales. And it's actually been shown. There's some new research that's come out showing, you know, exactly how much krill are eaten by these whales. And for one really small area, 
So this area around the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, where there's actually a, a commercial fishery for krill, uh, it's shown that in this one area, the humpbacks and the fin whales alone are eating about 2 million metric tons of krill combined each year. And just so for some perspective, uh, in that one area, the fishery is, well, the, the whales are eating about 13 times as much krill as the fishery in that area where it's currently concentrating. Wow. So that's a question that I think when we talk about how much, because, you know, everybody knows the stat about blue whales eating so much a day. And we we're just saying about the humpbacks and fins. Do we know how much krill there is? in the world or just in Antarctica, like for a perspective of how, what percentage of that population? Yeah. So let's see in that broader region around the Antarctic peninsula, there's about 60 million tons. So this is, I guess, 2 million is a good chunk of that 60 Mm -hmm. million. And then I think it's estimated that around the entire Antarctic continent, there's somewhere around 400 million tons of krill. Okay. Wow. So a lot, but a lot. this is a still yes. an issue because we're, has to, we're talking about it and there is a fishery. So what is happening right now in the Southern Ocean to krill? Right. So uh, two main things are happening with krill. Uh, well, climate change and industrial fishing mm-hmm. are fundamentally altering this unique system and krill are no exception. So... What's happening is that the commercial fishery for krill has become extremely concentrated in recent mm-hmm. years. And the majority of catch is taken from really small nearshore areas where penguins, whales, and other predators feed. And so it's this localized depletion of krill combined with the impacts of climate change that's actually having a negative impact on the predators. And there's some evidence already that um, penguin health in particular is being negatively impacted. And there's been some declines in the health and vitality of some of the Antarctic penguins in the Antarctic Mm -hmm. Peninsula region. And in addition, just to dive in a little bit more on climate change, so krill have adapted their life cycle to be totally reliant on sea ice. Mm -hmm. And some of the places where krill live, in particular the Antarctic Peninsula, are amongst the fastest warming places on Earth. And so warming has caused the krill to shift their population south. They're losing habitat. And scientists are predicting that this habitat size is going to continue to shrink. And acidification is also having a negative impact on krill. And lab studies show that the acidification has a negative impact on the development of krill eggs, which could actually lead to a collapse of the population by 2300 if things don't change with regard to ocean acidification. Jeez. So obviously very serious. Very serious. What is being done to address these threats? So there's this body uh, called CAMLAR. Um, It's the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. Uh, It was established in 1982 in response to the growth of the fleet for krill Mm -hmm. around the Antarctic. And it has conservation as its primary objective, and it's been called the Krill Convention. And nowadays it has 27 members, and it has to make decisions by consensus. And it has a mandate to prevent fishing 
from causing an irreversible impact on the ecosystem. And so it's supposed to only allow fishing when it can be proven that that fishing isn't having a negative impact over the long term on the fish species or the species that depend on it. So Kamler is considering two tools to alleviate stress on krill and the ecosystem. So those are marine protected areas and ecosystem-based fisheries management measures. Uh, marine protected areas are areas of the ocean that are managed to conserve nature for the long term uh, by restricting activities, um, including fishing. And the science is clear that MPAs can produce positive ecological outcomes uh, including increased biodiversity and species densities. And by minimizing other threats, MPAs can build resilience against climate change. And so noting the value of marine protected areas, this organization, Camlar, in 2011, agreed by consensus to create a network of large-scale MPAs for the Southern Ocean. And to date, they've adopted two of these MPAs in the South Orkney Islands and in the Ross Sea. And there's three additional MPAs uh, that are have been proposed and are ready to be designated. And those are in the East Antarctic, the Weddell Sea, and the Antarctic Peninsula region. And then the other thing Kamlar is considering and developing is for the waters adjacent to the marine protected areas. Kamlar is working to implement a science-based, ecosystem-based fisheries management plan that would spread the catch out in space and over the seasons mm. throughout the year to ease pressure of the fishery taking food from predators. Cool. So I'm, I'm guessing there's probably some people who are surprised that krill is a commercial fishery because you don't see it at the grocery store, as far as I know. Can you talk about why it's a commercial fishing interest? Yes, yeah, so uh, krill is mostly fish for luxury products. It's not fish for human sustenance. So as you said, you wouldn't currently see it in the seafood section at your grocery store. But the products that are made from krill are omega-3 oil supplements. So you might see those in the, you know, your vitamin section. Uh, so, you know, for human need, and then also krills being used to feed animals, in particular farmed fish like salmon. Cool. Well, not cool. <laughs> no, not so cool. I feel like you've touched on this a lot, um, but the, you know, politically, the situation regarding the management of the fishery outside of Kamlar, what's sort of the... Where are, where are the other pressures coming, maybe coming against Kamlar with, with this fishery? Right. So several countries have strong fishing interests. So Norway takes the most krill currently, and then that's followed by Korea and China and then Chile and Ukraine. And, you know, as the Antarctic continues to warm, it's, it's important to protect this important place prior to any increase in fishing pressure. And so I mentioned the MPAs that have already been adopted. The last one that was adopted was the Ross Sea MPA that was adopted in 2016. And it's actually the world's largest protected area. But since that time, uh, two of the Kamler members in particular, uh, Russia and China, have voiced opposition to adopting the proposed MPA proposals. And this has prevented Kamler from reaching the consensus that it needs for designation. Uh, but Kimmler has another opportunity this October. It's set to decide 
on both the MPA network and advancing ecosystem-based management at the upcoming annual meeting that happens in Hobart, Tasmania. Mm-hmm. So I think, look, this is a question that I have because it's Antarctica and we don't really, it's not like it's got a White House or anything like that. So what happens once Kalmar decides on something? Who puts those kind of into place and who like enforces them and stuff? So Kamlar decisions are made and enforced by the members. So it's 26 different countries in the European Union that are the members. So it is up to the collective as well as, you know, the individual governments to work together to put these things in place and then to ensure that what Kamlar has decided is being reflected in terms of the domestic rules and laws. And something I think... uh, I feel this way. I know when we talk to other scientists, you can start to feel this way, but certainly for our listeners, those are all very, very high level decisions and high level threats. What can an individual global citizen do to try and make make a change and, and impact Krill in a positive way? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And There's a number of things that individuals can do to protect krill and the species like whales that depend on them, ranging from, you know, your personal consumer habits to being vocal about the issue. So anything that you as an individual can do to reduce your carbon emissions is going to help, you know, limit the impact of climate change on the Antarctic. You could also consider alternatives to krill supplements like omega-3s from marine algae. And then in terms of being more vocal about the issue, you could reach out to your government officials to let them know how important Antarctic conservation is to you. But you can also look for ways to spread the word with your friends and family about protecting the Antarctic. You could be active on social media, attend local events. Uh, So, you know, one opportunity is you could chime in on social media on World Krill Day, and you could do that by following the hashtag World Krill Day. Yeah, and celebrate with us. <laughs> so we know why krill are important to whales and things like that. But if we're not a whale or a penguin, why should we care about krill? So Antarctica is a global commons that belongs to all of humanity. And it plays an outsized role in global processes. It stores the majority of human-made carbon and heat that is stored in the ocean. It can play a significant role in sea level rise. And it's, you know, some like to say it's the beating heart of Mm. the planet because it actually circulates nutrients to seas around the world and drives productivity for biodiversity and, you know, fisheries and all the other things that we love about the ocean all around the world. That's amazing. I love that beating heart of the world. Yeah. Wow. What a great, yeah, really powerful analogy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I have a new question that I thought about while we were talking. What is your favorite thing about krill? I think one really cool fact about Antarctic krill is that they can actually glow. And they have these photophores, which are organs that allow them to grow. And it's thought that they do this either to sync up with each other while they're swimming, so they kind of maintain structure in their swarm, or as a way to avoid predators, mm. like in the same way that an octopus <laughs> would shoot out ink to you know, evade predators, a krill can emit light potentially to evade its predators. Wow, that's I mean, really cool. Excellent, <laughs> excellent answer. 
excellent answer. Also, excellent strategy because I don't want to eat glowing no. food. No, no. no. I'm starting to like put a burger towards my mouth, and then all of a sudden it's just like bah light. I'm like, nope. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's, That's probably awesome. a pretty safe approach. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and Nikki, before we go, um, since obviously krill are very, very, very important to whales and whales are important to us and our listeners, we always like to ask people we have on the podcast for what's your favorite whale tale. So while you've been doing all of the incredible work and research that you do, um, have you seen whales? What sorts of species have you seen? And for you, what's one of your favorite whale tales that you've ever experienced? I think for me, my I've had a couple of experiences over the last year year where I got to see humpback whales in the wild and prior to this last year I had never seen humpback whales I actually got to see them when I was in Tasmania for the last Kamlar meeting I saw them migrating south along the Tasmanian peninsula it was a mother and calf uh, and I saw a similar thing earlier this year in Costa Rica it was also a mother and calf and I actually got to go to Antarctica for the first time last year and see a humpback whale there. And so for me, working on this issue for so long and then finally being able to see these animals in the wild was just truly amazing. And that I saw three within a year, I think also speaks <laughs> to the fact that they're rebounding mm -hmm. and becoming more plentiful. And so we really need to work even more diligently to take care of them. Yeah. Ugh. And That's all over so awesome. in such different areas as well. It's so cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you really wanted to bring up with our listeners or tell us about? Yeah, I think the one thing I wanted to share mm -hmm. is regarding the MPAs. Mm -hmm. There's one in particular that's been proposed for the Antarctic Peninsula region, and that's the area where the krill fishery is currently concentrated. Mm -hmm. So this MPA proposal has been put forward by Chile and Argentina, two of the Kamlar members. And what's really cool about this proposal is there's some research that has shown they, they looked at what would happen under future climate change, and the research has shown that this MPA would protect krill, it would protect the predators that depend on krill, and it would even still have benefits for the fishery that's operating there. So it's kind of a win-win-win. So yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like a, a really great way to give everybody interested a fighting chance. And Nikki, we do have listeners really and truly all over the world to this podcast. So if if you know what countries might be sort of in opposition to that MPA, it is possible that we have listeners there who might actually be able to reach out to like, not when you say like reach out to your MP or reach out to your political representative, if they are in that country and are citizens of that country, they could really, really make their voices heard. Do you know what countries in particular might be most beneficial to reach out to in Kamler? Well, as I said, there's 27 members and it's important to engage with all of them because mm -hmm. of the consensus basis of the organization. Currently, the two that have yet to provide their support for these particular MPAs are Russia and China. And it's also important that the fishing countries remember their commitment to MPAs. And so the countries fishing for krill are Norway, China, Korea, Chile, and Ukraine. Okay, great. Great. 
Thanks so much, Nikki. I loved hearing about all the amazing conservation work that's happening throughout the world in order to protect Antarctica. Yeah. Our final guests are Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau. The Cousteaus are journalists, explorers, scholarly entrepreneurs who have a huge voice in the world of filmmaking and conservation. They've traveled the world in search of stories to captivate and inspire us all. As hosts, speakers, authors, filmmakers, entrepreneurs, they use the power of entertainment to save the world. And we were so honored and delighted to get to speak to them. And I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. So now we are here talking with Ashlyn and Philippe Cousteau. Thank you so much for being here. First of all, it's amazing to get to talk to you. Can we start off with who you are and what you've been working on? Sure, I'll have Philippe start. Well, we're delighted to be here. First of all, thank you so much for having us. You know, my background is in my whole life in the ocean. I'm someone, third generation of a, of a family that has dedicated its life to, lives, generations, to exploring, protecting, and, and crucially restoring the ocean. You know, my grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, it was really about 75 years ago that he co-invented scuba diving, which yeah, is a human lifetime, really, right? And, and and so not that long ago that people actually started really exploring the ocean beneath the waves. He invented underwater cameras and, you know, really through his films and documentary series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau was the first to open the world's eyes to what exists in the ocean, which is astonishing. We've spent our entire existence essentially, you know, on or around the ocean, but just a lifetime exploring, uh, exploring it. And so uh, my father, Philippe Senior, uh, joined his journey, became the, the um, director and producer and, and chief cinematographer for 26 of those Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau episodes and was a, was a pioneer in, in ocean conservation himself. And, and so inspired by that legacy, I've you know been working in, in this work uh, from youth education through my nonprofit, Earth Echo International, to films, documentaries, books, um, all sorts of mischief for, for, for my entire, essentially my entire life, really. And I kind of came uh, into this partnership a little differently. Uh, so <laughs> I am a Southern girl from North Carolina. And my dream job growing up was to become a journalist, but specifically a travel or entertainment journalist. Uh, I was lucky enough to land my dream job. Uh, I was a correspondent and fill-in anchor for E! News for about seven years. And when I met Philippe uh, one evening, he was giving a speech about the BP oil, oil spill. And I remember I looked at him and I thought to myself, wow, why am I talking about like Kylie Jenner's new haircut when I could be talking about this person who is like the true life Indiana Jones? Hmm, I need to reevaluate my Amazing. life goals. And I did. And Philippe and I have been together ever oh, wow. since. Literally and since that night. Since that night. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it was all about, okay, we we need we need more people to care about the ocean. And to do that, we need more people to know about the ocean. And so I always, still to this day, I, I always look of, you know, how can we just expand the people that, that know about these issues, the people that understand how complex our ocean is and how we can't talk about climate change or weather without talking about our ocean, but yet we still go to all these climate change conferences and no one's talking about the ocean. <laughs> so, uh, so Philippe and I now, you know, we work together, we do everything from, you know, we wrote Oceans for Dummies. Uh, well, you wrote most of it. 
Okay, that's true. So, so we do that. We have shows on Travel Channel, you know, on, on, on Discovery Channel. And, and, and I really look at, like Philippe said, you know, as storytellers, just how can we tell the story of the ocean better? How can we make it more exciting? How can we get people more involved? And, and how can we also show the human connection to our ocean? Because we all know there are some people, but there's not enough people that care about polar bears. Like we have to stop talking about polar bears and we need to start talking about the whole systems and how that affects yeah. putting food on the table for your family or how that affects your children having asthma or how that affects uh, national security. And so we're, we're really thinking about, you know, connecting the dots for people between Wonderful. their daily lives in the ocean. So since we're here today to talk about krill and specifically Antarctic krill, do you want to talk about how you got involved in specifically the Southern Antarctic Ocean and even more specifically the Antarctic krill? Yeah. Well, I'll just say that my family's been involved in this work for a long time. My grandfather was... Um, was one of the key individuals that, that really helped the, the Madrid Protocol yeah. that protected the continent of Antarctica get, get uh, ratified uh, by the United States and, and France, particularly his work with um, George H.W. Bush in, in getting uh, the United States on board. But mm -hmm. our personal connection to Antarctica, actually Ashland's predates mine. So yes, I uh, I made it to all seven continents before my wow. husband. Wow. Which I think That's is a impressive. pretty awesome thing considering I'm I'm yeah. married to a Cousteau, so I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so yes, I was. I went down to Antarctica um, in, oh my gosh, 2017, I think was my first trip, and, and really just fell in love with the continent and the science that was going on and, and the issues that are, that are around, you know, that are on the continent and obviously surrounding in the Southern Ocean. Then, you know, Philippe and I were invited uh, to be on the, well, it's not a board, but to, to be a yeah, part of the group of Antarctica 2020. And we are tasked as a group to establish three new marine protected areas around Antarctica in the Southern Ocean. If when we get these three marine protected uh, areas established, it will be not only 1% of mm -hmm. our ocean, wow. which That's is incredible, crazy. But it would also be the largest act of conservation in the history of humankind. Wow. Um, and that's what really gets us excited. And, you know, why we are specifically so driven to get these marine protected areas established is number one, we know they work. We've seen them work in Cabo Pulmo, in Bikini Atoll, in the Mediterranean. We know marine protected areas work. And we also know that the Southern Ocean is our most fertile and most vital part of our ocean. We always like to remind people that there's only one ocean, <laughs> just different areas have different names. Yes. So the whole thing is connected. So even if people think that the Southern Ocean is so far mm. away from them, it's not. It affects our climate, it affects our weather, it affects our food system, and specifically krill. They are the keystone species, meaning Almost every single animal in Antarctica either eats krill or eats something that eats krill. So it's a keystone species in the Southern Ocean, but it is technically a keystone species for our entire ocean because it's the fertile cold waters of Antarctica moving up to the warmer waters around the equator that warm and they go up to the Arctic, they get cold, they come back down again. But it's the, it's the, it's the nutrients that are in the Southern Ocean that actually disperse across our entire ocean and are the basis of our entire ocean food web. <laughs> so krill are very, 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 very important. If I cannot 
express that enough. I know this tiny little crustacean, right? And you know, when you think about the, the system that they're involved in of also the phytoplankton providing mm -hmm. most of the oxygen on Earth. Of course, you know, the, this carbon sink that they're that they're yeah. instrumental to, which is the largest single carbon sink on Earth, you know, twelve or, or so billion tons um, that is absorbed through that phytoplankton whale curl system. Uh, yeah, kind of, yep. kind of important. <laughs> Just so, kind of. Um, we've been engaged with Antarctica 2020 for, for about three years now, and and really uh, honored to be to be a part of that uh, group of really extraordinary people. Yeah. Well, and it's a good thing that krill are finally getting their awareness yeah, day yeah. Then, since they're so important. Krill. I mean, they're these little superheroes. That I know. They're awesome. So we do know, though, that climate change and industrial fishing are impacting krill. Can you talk a little bit more about what needs to be done to protect them and what specifically you two are doing to sort of change the narrative around one of the biggest impacts of that fishing industry around krill? Yeah. So, I mean, krill, these mighty superheroes are facing mm. mighty challenges. Um, number one, uh, ocean. I mean, the poor things, not even just two <laughs> issues. There's ocean acidification, there's ocean warming, there's the um, the ice melting, which is changing the salinity of the Southern Ocean. I mean, it's a whole bag of not great news. But for us specifically, there's something that humans are doing that's just dumb. And we should stop doing <laughs> dumb things. There are many things. Well, there's many things that are this one in particular is Somebody's really dumb. Yeah, this others. is really dumb. So um, let's talk specifically about the industrial <laughs> krill fishery. So these boats are going down and scooping up krill as much as they possibly can, especially where they're super concentrated, where whales and penguins and seals are all trying to feed. It's just, it's a mess. But what really drives us crazy is 70% um, of the market value of krill is specifically for the nutraceutical market of North America, which means that most of the krill being fished is coming to the United States to be sold as omega-3 supplements. It's now, omega-3s are great, they're good for you, amazing. Here's the kicker, krill and fish, they don't make their own omega-3s they get omega-3s by eating algae. So we are literally disrupting our largest carbon sink, one of our largest uh, suppliers of oxygen, the basis of our entire ocean food web for something that is completely replaceable and not even just replaceable, there's a better alternative. If you go straight to the algae, you're going straight to the source. If you're going and fishing krill for their omega-3s, you're just mm -hmm. going to the middleman. So as humans, we can just stop most of this industry uh, by just getting consumers to understand that if you do indeed take fish oil or krill oil, please know that there isn't just a replacement, there's a better alternative. Yeah, it's, it's wild. It's a great example of, of uh, really a manufactured demand for a subpar product by a special interest. And that industry, predominantly driven by Norway, Norway is the largest krill fisher on earth, followed by China. And the obstruction of the establishment of these critical MPAs, because you know you mentioned, uh, Lindsay, that, that climate change is affecting krill. Well, it's estimated that krill populations could drop by 30% over the next few decades, right? And just from climate, uh, from ocean warming and, and the melting sea ice and the salinity changes, et cetera, that Ashton mentioned. So we should not be compounding mm the pressures on this critical system yeah. 
by catching it in order to enrich a few folks in an industry for absolutely no reason at all. Yeah. Uh, Algae-based uh, uh, omega-3s are more absorbable simply because they're a more water-soluble lipid. They're just a, a fat that your body absorbs better. It's just chemistry. It's not like anything more complicated than that. And so we can now grow that algae in farms on non-arable land, in other words, land that can't be farmed, on, you know, on land providing good, I mean, th these algae farms that we're actually working uh, on this project, on this work, these algae farms are here in the United States providing good, you know, U.S. jobs. And the only inputs to those algae farms is sunlight and some CO2, CO2 purchased from uh, uh, local power plants. And then you get, you extract the omega-3s from this algae and uh, you get a, a more absorbable, better quality, clean, vegan, plant-based product. And so there's like, by no measure, is krill or, or frankly fish oil from omegas a better superior product to algae then you add on the fact that oh and we're also working to preserve the world's largest carbon sink critical to ocean biodiversity and oxygen production and you start to think hmm maybe <laughs> a better product for me and for the ocean that's a yeah. good play so we're actually for Old krill day our big news um which you're the yeah. first to hear about it actually Ooh. we're launching we are launching pre-orders for our algae-based uh, omega-3 supplement um, that also has astaxanthin, which is a, a antioxidant, which also found in krill. And one of the people reason people take krill oh. is for the astaxanthin. So we've combined that. It's from just algae. another algae. That oh yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> They're not inventing <laughs> it. Right. Into the source, everybody. Um, so we're launching Cevoir, and our our pre-orders are going live. Uh, oh, for fantastic! Day, so yeah. we're pretty Congratulations! That. That's very yeah. exciting. The best thing for krill is to keep krill yeah. in the ocean. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. That's it. And people need omegas, they're a great product. So let's yeah. get them from the sources, okay. get them from algae. So that's great. what we're doing. Be more like krill rather than eat krill. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. They know yeah. what's up. They're eating the right, they're eating algae. Yeah. They don't need each other to get omegas. Why are we? <laughs> yep. So yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about what they could be doing to protect krill from where they live? Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, in, here in North America, the, the really the biggest one Again, the biggest demand for krill is for mm -hmm. omegas, for nutraceuticals. And krill meal is also used in aquaculture, but it is a lower value product, mm -hmm. right? You usually squeeze and extract the oil and then take that krill meal and sell it on to aquaculture feed for salmon and things like that. So there is zero reason for the krill omega market to exist. There's a lot of greenwashing going on and uh, obfuscation and, and frank, mm -hmm. downright lies in the market about krill oil, but the, the science and the data is, is that it's destroying the Southern Ocean and it's unnecessary and it's inferior to algae-based omegas. That's just the facts. So really a simple daily thing, if you or someone you know takes omega-3s, uh, get vegan omega-3s and, yep. and sign up, you know, and listen, Cevoir will be, is launching World Krill Day, but no matter what you do, look for krill alternatives, uh, preferably plant-based products, um, predominantly in nutraceuticals. And honestly, like that's the main use of krill. It's not like palm oil. We talk about palm oil and it's used in a million mm. different things. Krill oil is in nutraceuticals in North America. That's the main market. So we as consumers have actually an enormous amount of power and a better alternative to shift that demand, reduce the economic incentive for fishing in the Southern Ocean, and then reduce the incentive for these companies in these countries to obstruct what is and will be the single largest act of ocean conservation in human history. Yes, I like that. It's a clear, 
clear one good step that people can take yeah. instead of having to which is have all the different suggestions coming at them from everywhere yeah like so oh rare. your carbon footprint yeah. like that's a lot like carbon, yeah, foot, yes, carbon footprint yes uh, but it's like yes. this is a yeah. one thing you can mm-hmm. do every day yeah. to save the crow this is a win we can all mm-hmm. come together around and and achievable Amazing. and again it, even if you don't give a hoot about antarctica it's also just happens that algae is a better product and so, yeah. absorbable. So why would you mm-hmm. want to take it? It doesn't it taste anyway, fishy. Right? <laughs> but so people please, don't know. everybody should give a hoot yes, about it. Yes, yes. Yeah, we agree. If you like to yep. breathe, yes. you, you, you know, you, breathe you, and eat. You, you like Antarctica. Yeah, you, you know, Antarctica. Yeah. So. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Philippe, especially, you talked a lot about continuing your family's uh, marine conservation legacy. And we just wanted to ask, like, why was that so important to you? I mean, obviously your family's legacy is important to all of us. I think the three of us grew up like with amazing ocean documentaries and going to the ocean and being inspired by what we saw on TV. But do you want to talk about like why it was so important to you personally? So I, I never actually got to meet my father, mm-hmm. Philippe Sr. He died in an airplane accident just six months before I was born. But so I was my mother raised by a single mom, my sister and I. And um, she had such a big influence on us growing up and, and really helping us understand how important purpose is in life um, more than anything else. And, you know, frankly, that's something I think the world is struggling with right now, particularly coming out of COVID, right? The, the difference between value and purpose in life and making money or having lots of stuff, et cetera, which, you know, doesn't fulfill. And my mom was really wonderful and is wonderful um, and, and a hero of mine who helped us recognize a purpose is really important. However, we decided to pursue that purpose. Uh, it just so happens that when I was 16, I had an opportunity to go to Papua New Guinea with Dr. Eugenie Clark, who was a pioneering uh, female oceanographer. And um, I was, remember we were out two months, uh, about two weeks, two or three weeks in, uh, in Southeastern New Guinea. And uh, we were diving every day, we were out in like, amidst people that had never like been contacted or seen, you know, in out islands, these tribes that were like completely like unknown really to, to the West very much, very little contact. Um, we were uh, trading, you know, with them and, and, you know, rice and things like that for fresh fruit. And then on our days off, we'd go hiking in the mountains surrounding this one bay that we were in days away from anything. And we saw a huge cave and went into this cave and it was filled with human skulls going back centuries. Did not and see that coming. With no, <laughs> nobody knew why, nobody knows to this day what they are, the, the, the culture or the, the religion or the spiritual that, that it stems from, it's like lost to history. So here I am 16 years old, like in the middle of the jungle in skull caves, diving and like with saltwater crocodiles, like all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, this is Indiana Jones. Yeah, right, right, right. This yeah. is like so cool. And I was like, of course yeah. I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. So it, it just so happens you know, I was, and I did know my grandfather well as well. And so that idea of purpose and the importance of purpose and, and working to make the world better um, was always ingrained in me. And then being able to have those experiences, you know, when I was younger, really cemented <laughs> that this was the route, exploration, adventure and conservation and restoration was the route that I wanted to take. Yeah. That's a really good answer <laughs> with some su- <laughs> surprising twists in it. <laughs> okay so one question we do like to ask everybody on this world krill day podcast is what is your favorite fun fact about krill Ooh. so i just looked it up the other yesterday i think it was yeah yeah. their krill are about the size Mm -hmm. of your thumb in length Mm -hmm. up to two inches and they weigh 0.035 ounces they weigh virtually nothing (laughs) and 
yet this tiny, tiny little virtually weightless thing is absolutely mm. critical to life on earth. Wow. Yeah. And it's amazing. That is amazing. Very yeah. good fact. And I think that it's back when we were whaling, when, mm. when, when, That's a good one. you know, the countries were whaling, we've gone back and I looked at this through like sediment testing, but so whales eat krill, right? Yep. Whales eat krill. And, um, <laughs> it's whale poop. So, well, hold on. <laughs> so, so whale, it's come back to poop. Yeah. Oh no, we always know it comes back like, to poop. poop. <laughs> so I think what's so cool is when when humans were hunting whales and the whale population declined, one would think that the krill population would explode, right? Because their main one of their main predators. I mean, they have lots of predators, but as you can imagine, whales eat a lot of krill because they're really big. So as we humans, again, we were being dumb and we were hunting whales. Uh, as the whale populations declined, one would think that the krill populations would explode, but they didn't. They also decreased. And scientists were a little perplexed about this. And what they were realizing was that in this cycle of phytoplankton, krill, and whales, that when the whale population decreased, so did the phytoplankton. Because whale poop is rich in mm. iron. And the phytoplankton needs needs iron. So when the when the whales died and the iron rich poop stopped, <laughs> then the phytoplankton blooms were smaller, and then the krill didn't have enough to eat, so their population declined as well. So I always thought that was so interesting yeah. that when you do take out a big apex predator, that still it just goes to show that then the entire ecosystem that they yeah. eat that's below <laughs> them, quote unquote. Also yeah. suffers. Yeah, absolutely. So I always thought that was fun that krill and again, krill is it's, this is this incredible ecosystem that's so important to oxygen, to carbon sequestration. And when we disrupt it, it's yeah. not yeah. good. Mm -hmm. When everybody thinks that like the disruption of the global carbon cycle happened during the Industrial Revolution, it actually predates that by a couple hundred years when humans were killing the whales at, at millions of them and we were destroying this whole massive system, we were, that's when we actually started disrupting the global climate um, and carbon yeah. cycle in the 1500s. And so- Because then we were also burning the whale blubber. Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. It yeah. In, yeah. You know, <laughs> and like, oh my God. Yeah, what were we using it for? Yeah, fire. fire. Yep. <laughs> Literally burning all of the whales up. So, you know, the, the system is one that, that is so important, what's left of it. And to think that we're disrupting that predominantly for supplements yeah yeah fish food so and silly. pet food is really mm -hmm. like is really crazy yeah, yeah absolutely absurd yeah. okay so we are a whale based podcast and we're so excited to be talking about krill but we always want to bring it back to our favorites and so we were hoping maybe you could share uh one of your favorite or most exciting uh whale encounters that you've had in your travels with our audience Ooh, whale encounters will you probably you should tell your sperm whale story. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> that was a good one. Um, uh, uh, we were filming a show. Uh, I, was, I was a co-host for a show called Oceans on BBC about 10 years ago, a little more now. And we were filming in the Sea of Cortez. And there was a pod of about 
four or five, I think it was five juvenile sperm whales that were all, we think they were all males. They were all kind of roughhousing essentially in the water. And so, you know, sperm whales, pretty big. Uh, and so we entered the water, we were snorkeling with the cameraman and myself, and we felt like we were a safe distance away where you could still see the whales, but we, we were far enough away. Well, we weren't because even though we were probably like 50 feet away from the nearest whale, all of a sudden, one of the whales literally came up over and rolled over the back of the whale that was in the foreground that we were filming. And it's pectoral fin, the tip of it came over and uh, smacked me. Oh um, and uh, oh uh, uh, not it's pectoral fin, I'm sorry, it's it's uh, 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 dorsal fin, tail fin, I'm sorry, it's tail oh, yeah. fluke, uh, came over and, and hit me um, and knocked my, knocked the wind out of me, knocked my mask oh. and, and snorkel off and like stunned me, hit me into the camera man who dropped the camera, he had it on a tether, thank goodness, and stunned him and, and like in an yeah. instant. <laughs> Obviously not the whale's fault. They didn't even know, probably even really yeah. care or know we were there. A uh, little gnat flying around. Um, but it was just a very uh, intimate <laughs> moment with us for a while. Indeed. That, uh, that definitely, um, again, we thought we had plenty of distance uh, between us and the whale, but I guess when one school bus rolls over <laughs> another school bus, and um, wax into you, yeah. then, you know, you kind of yeah. realize that um, that 50 feet maybe yeah. isn't even enough. But um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty and in hindsight, very yeah. cool. Yeah. Nobody in ultimately got really hurt. Terrifying. So. Yeah. Cool. Uh, terrifying at yeah. the moment, yeah. And I, I was running through my list of whale stories and I have not been slapped <laughs> by one, but um, there's, there is one that I love. We were in, uh, up, up near you all. We were up off of uh, mm-hmm. San Juan Island, and we were looking for Granny, yeah. you know, the most yeah. famous porcas, okay. and it was the first year that they um, had not mm-hmm. seen her. Oh. So she, and we were just filming the J-Pod out there. We were out with Ken Balcom and his team of whale researchers, which are just incredible humans. And I remember we were just there. We found a few of the, you know, a, a part of the pod, and all of a sudden, we looked and there was a salmon, a huge Chinook salmon that decided to take refuge underneath the little boat we were in. And the next thing we know, six of J-Pod were coming over and trying to move our boat out of the way to get the salmon. And I, I was so excited. I literally was screaming like a child, but but yep. trying to be quiet, you know, like when you're so excited, but your parents are telling you not to make any noise. So I'm there like hyperventilating. I have tears coming down my face. I have snot coming out of my nose because I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. So in the end, I think somehow the salmon got away. I still don't know. Somehow the salmon got away, but the, since the orcas were there and since the orcas know Ken, they were just, they just kind of cruised. They were spy hopping, kind of looking at us. Like, I swear to God, one of them waved at us. Um, but it was, it was really amazing to just be there with that yeah. family. Yeah. And that was, and that was really, really cool. And then at one point, one of the big boys from J or L, I think it was one of the guys from L pod. We were looking at Mount Rainier in the background and mm. he just full body jumped out of the water. No, I think it was Mount Baker. Was it Mount Baker? Yeah. Yeah. And Mount we, Baker, so we yeah. have a picture of it was Baker. So we just have oh, a picture of this full amazing. breach. 
Per it was like he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, guys. Like, hey guys, hey guys, watch this. Right out of special casting. It was, was like, go. It was incredible. Click, it was fantastic. Yeah. So wow. yeah, I mean, we have awesome stories. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think orcas are, are mm, one of my favorite. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, being where we are, orcas are, you know, yep. up there for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So is there anything else that we missed that you'd like to touch on about krill, whales, anything? Thank you for doing oh, the yeah. story. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I will say oh. the one thing I don't think we said, the one thing I didn't think we said, and not to sound too, mm. like, pitchy, but literally the only reason we're doing this business is yep. to save krill and is to save this other mm -hmm. notion. So, yeah, our, our pre-launch is open today, and anybody that's interested can go to sevoir.com, and that's S-E-A-V. O-I-R, sevoir.com, and sign up. Great. Yeah, we'll put so that exciting. link in the show notes. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank, thank you, you very much. Appreciate it. I can't believe that that happened. Right? Me either. Uh, and truly, we have to thank each and every one of the guests who took the time to speak to us from truly all over the world. So to Kim, Jen, Nikki, Philippe, and Ashlyn, thank you so, so much for joining us and for spreading the important word about krill and what people like us can do to try and support and save and protect and care about this incredibly important species, not just for whales, but really for all of us. Yeah, I think when we started this journey, I, I was like, yeah, krill, that's cool. Let's do it. And now I'm like, yes, krill, let's do it. <laughs> indeed. Yeah, indeed. Save the krill, save the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this extra special episode. Thank you to everyone, new and old listeners alike, for joining us here to celebrate World Krill Day. We will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode. And if you just can't get enough of us, be sure to check out our Patreon where we will have even more new content coming to you this month. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast and catch up on our almost 60 other episodes. And of course, while you're there, read almost 1,300 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories from around the world. As we have already mentioned, we do have a Patreon. You can head to patreon.com slash whaletales to find out how you can support everything we do here and get some amazing perks along the way. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean in the wild, we would love to add your story to our library. You can click the share link on our website. You can contact us on social media at whaletales underscore org, or you can email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter. Thank you everyone so much, including again, our special guests and the Pew Charitable Trusts and especially Barbara, who coordinated the interviews with all of our special guests. Barbara, you made our dreams come true. Thank you so, <laughs> so much for this. And we hope that you all have a crilly great day.